0: This sermon was recorded at Church of the Ascension, an Anglican parish in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, whose mission is to be a worshiping community that equips God's people and shares Christ's healing with a broken world. For more information, please visit ascensionpittsburgh.org. Let us pray. Not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to you be the glory. Your kingdom is forever. We wait with patience. For Jesus' return. Lord, we pray that you would teach us to endure. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of all our hearts be pleasing and acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. You may be seated. So today we're marking the third Sunday of Advent, which is sometimes called Gaudete or Rejoice Sunday. The color of the candle, you may have noticed, changes from violet to rose. And we have this hopeful reading from Isaiah, which reminds us that when the redemption of God comes, the desert and the parched land will bloom. It will rejoice greatly and shout for joy. That's a beautiful image. We named our firstborn daughter Rain Mercy after this image of redemption in Isaiah. This image of a soft and nourishing rain coming to a dry and weary land and the land blossoming, verdant and lush. But this image in Isaiah also reminds us that Advent is an emotionally complex season. It's meant to be so. The soft rain that represents God's redemption comes to a land that is so dry and so withered that all its life has been sapped from it. The aridity of the land is like the dryness and the weariness of our souls. There is hope coming. But we cannot embrace this hope if we have not fully faced the desolation of our situation. To practice Advent is just to face the facts about who we are and what the world is like. It is to acknowledge that things are not the way they are supposed to be before we celebrate the coming of the one in whom all things will be put to rights. (coughs) Mother Tish wrote that to practice Advent is to lean into an almost cosmic ache, our deep and wordless desire for things to be made right and the incompleteness that we find in the meantime. We dwell in a world that is still wracked with conflict, violence, suffering, darkness. Advent holds space for our grief. And it reminds us that all of us in one way or another are not only wounded by the evil of the world, but are also wielders of it, contributing our own moments of unkindness or impatience or selfishness. I think it's interesting that on Gaudete Sunday, our gospel reading is always about John the Baptist. And here's why. Because John the Baptist is a drag. Jesus tells us in our passage today very plainly that John the Baptist is not the dude that you want to invite to the holiday party. You don't invite him because he's going to sit there in his hair shirt and his wasted, emaciated body worn out from fasting, and he's going to judge you for your overindulgence in the eggnog. Now Jesus, he's the guy you want at the party, right? John the Baptist came neither eating nor drinking. Not fun. But the son of the man, the son of man, that's Jesus, came eating and drinking. My guess is that Jesus is a fan of holiday parties. But John the Baptist is the one that we focus our attention on on Gaudete Sunday. And it's very intentional. Rejoice! The judgment of God is coming. See? Advent's very emotionally complex. And we might say that John the Baptist is the patron saint of Advent. He most represents the posture of Advent because he understands himself, and the gospel writers understand him to be straddling two ages. There is the age where sin and death reign, where the wicked prosper and the righteous suffer, and where God is silent as the world is on fire and seems almost to go off of its axis. And then there is the day of the Lord, which inaugurates a new age, in which all that has been defaced and vandalized by sin is set to rights. Sometimes the Bible calls these two ages this present age and the age to come. And the age to come is also sometimes called the messianic age, or the age of the kingdom of heaven. And N.T. Wright says that faithful Jews in John's day nearly all divided reality in this way. These two ages framed their longings and their expectations. It was at the heart of how they prayed and how they acted. When the Jews talked about the age to come, they didn't mean that the world was going to come to its end. But they did mean that the present order of the world, the present way in which the world was organized, would be overturned. Wright says that the age to come was understood to be profoundly this-worldly, but that it represented an expectation of a great reversal within the space-time world, in which Israel would be vindicated, and the world at last set back to rights under its true king, Israel's covenant God. And at that moment, Wright continues, the nations would flock to Zion, either to learn about the true God and how to worship him, or to be dashed in pieces like the potter's vessel if they resisted. Now John knew that the age to come was imminent, and that it was his job to prepare the way of the Lord, to usher in this age by calling the people of God to repentance so that they would be ready when he came. And John does all this, and he pulls exactly zero punches. I'm guessing that he would have been absolute rubbish at small talk, probably he would have been challenging to get along with altogether. John's entire life was one that was lived outside of normal society, completely uncompromised and uncompromising, rigidly ascetical and unconventional in every way. And even though he would have been tough to relate to, there is this one upshot. Nobody can speak truth to power like John the Baptist. John is morally unimpeachable. And more importantly, John knows that this present age is over. And that he and everyone else is standing on the precipice of the age to come. And the wrath of the Lord God is about to inundate the earth and wash away all the filth and the corruption. You might think that such a person would be alienating. But this kind of holiness is actually always alluring and attractive. So whenever I read about John the Baptist, I always think about the stylite saints of Byzantium, naturally. Now these bizarre ascetics went out into the middle of the desert and lived as hermits. You know what they did? They stood for decades of their lives on top of pillars to fight the prince of the air, as Ephesians calls the devil. They meant to be alone in doing this, but guess what? The people found them and they began to ask for spiritual counsel from them and to ask them to settle disputes. Hordes of people surrounded their pillars day and night. I can imagine that this was annoying and distracting to them, but as I say, holiness is always attractive. And likewise, hordes of people came to John to inquire about the state of their souls. The soldiers come to John, and they ask, what do we have to do to repent? And John gazes at them, and he pierces their hearts with a glance, and he says, stop extorting money from people and be satisfied with your wages. And the rich came to John and said, what must we do? And he said, give away everything that's not totally necessary. You can't take it with you anyway, and judgment's coming. And then there's Herod Antipas, the ruler of Judea. Now Herod was in grave sin because he was married to Herodias in contravention of the Mosaic law. Herodias had divorced Herod's half-brother Philip and then married Herod. And John the Baptist was having absolutely none of it. Just as Jesus would declare later his opposition to easy divorce and remarriage in Matthew 19, so John the Baptist tells Herod in no uncertain terms that it is not lawful for you to have her. And so because of that, Matthew 14 tells us that Herod wanted to kill John. But he was afraid of the people because they considered John a prophet. Which, of course, he was. As Jesus says in our passage today, he was a prophet, but more than a prophet. He was the greatest man ever to have been born of a woman. But Herodias pressured Herod to arrest John and put him in jail, and Herod obliged. And that's where our story picks up today in Matthew 11. John has lived this ascetical, marginal existence wearing clothes woven from camel hair and subsisting on a diet of bugs and honey because his entire life has been organized so as to live maximally in the truth and to be able to tell the truth to Israel about their misdeeds and call them to repentance. And he does all of this because he feels tremendous delight when he imagines the Messiah coming to vindicate Israel from its enemies, and not just the Romans, but the insider enemies of israel like that fake king herod antipas everybody knows that herod is on the take and only serves at the good pleasure of the romans and that he's a mere puppet king and not the lord's messiah but guess what only john dares to tell him to his face when the messiah comes john says he will be the agent of god's burning hot judgment his winnowing fork will be in his hand to clear the threshing floor gathering his wheat into the barn and burning up the chaff with unquenchable fire This is not, shall we say, a comfortable and cozy image of the Messiah's work. The prophets talk about the coming day of the Lord, which is a day of vengeance, when faithful Israel will be vindicated and the wicked will get what's coming to them. And John, just like other faithful Jews, is waiting on the Lord to come and create some carnage. He wants the Lord to come and wipe the floor, first with the Romans, and then to expose and to cast off all the compromised members of Israel who are keeping it from fulfilling his calling. So here is John. He spent his life fasting. And now he's rotting in a jail cell. And he's gotten a little tired of waiting for the Messiah to do what he's going to do. And so he sends Jesus this message through his disciples. Are you the one who is to come? Or should we expect someone else? If he is the king, he looks nothing like what John is waiting for. But then Jesus says this back to him. Go back and report to John what you hear and see. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, those who have leprosy are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and good news is proclaimed to the poor. What Jesus is saying to John is this, you're not wrong. The age to come has broken in, but you forget, John, you forget that the day of the Lord is not primarily about carnage. The wrath of God is always in service of his purifying love. The wrath of God does this one thing. It sweeps away all the obstacles that we have set up in our sinfulness to the world knowing and feeling the goodness and the love of God. And so the day of the Lord is actually a day of comfort. It's a day of great joy for the people. Jesus is quoting or a little bit riffing on this wonderful passage from Isaiah 61. And Jesus actually quotes that passage at the beginning of his ministry as a description of what he's going to do. Here's what it says. The spirit of the sovereign Lord is on me because the Lord has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted and to proclaim freedom to the captives and release from darkness for the prisoners To proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God. To comfort all who mourn. To bestow on them a crown of beauty instead of ashes. The oil of joy instead of mourning. And a garment of praise instead of a spirit of despair. So Jesus is saying, John, it's all happening, brother. The day of the Lord has broken in. But before God sweeps all the wickedness away, something else is happening. The Lord has prepared a feast for his people and he is inviting them and he is inviting you to sit down at it because of his loving kindness for his people. Behind John's question is really a concern about whether he's got his calculations wrong. Jesus' ministry looks so unlike what he thought would happen. Has he perhaps been wrong in thinking that Jesus is the Messiah? And Jesus says, no, you're right, the age is turning, the age to come is here. Open your bulletins and look at verse 11. Jesus says there that John was the greatest figure to arise in the former age, the age that is passing away. But in the coming age, the age that is dawning upon the people of Israel, the age of the kingdom of heaven, the least person will be greater than John. The meaning of the next verse, verse 12, is contested. And I actually think our translation here has it wrong. Most likely what Jesus is saying here is that from the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven is forcefully advancing, and the violent carry it away by force. The kingdom of heaven has broken through despite the fact that it is not wanted, despite the fact that its advance is resisted at every turn. Jesus comes with the invitation of God. But Jesus says that this generation will not hear the invitation, however it is spoken. If it is spoken in the sober tone of John the Baptist, who came neither eating or drinking, the people will say, he has a demon. If it is spoken in the exuberant tone of the Son of Man, who came eating and drinking with sinners, the people say, he's a a glutton and a drunkard and a friend of sinners and tax collectors. And so the invitation of God goes unheard and where it is heard, it is rejected. The coming of the kingdom of God is always met with blindness and hostility and violence because that is what sin does in us. It makes us resist and hate the things of God. The Trappist monk Thomas Merton once wrote the following observation about Christ's first advent. Into this world, this demented inn in which there is absolutely no room for him at all, Christ comes uninvited. The coming of the kingdom always elicits resistance, and its fruits are tragically ephemeral and fragile. The powers of sin and death and the devil seize them violently and bear them away. If we want to follow God in this world, we need to be clear eyed and realistic about this. When John announces the kingdom, when he prepares the way of the Lord, he is put in jail. And guess what? He's never released. He dies in jail. He's the victim of a cruel and a callous ruler who cares more about pleasing his stepdaughter than about preserving the life of the greatest of the prophets. Salome, Herodias' daughter, dances before Herod, and it pleases this lascivious, dirty old man so much that he says, I'll give you whatever you want, even up to half my kingdom. And she says, I'll take John the Baptist's head on a platter. With only a brief pang of conscience, Herod does this terrible thing. The greatest man born of woman in this present age is snuffed out in a colossal miscarriage of justice, just like that. The kingdom of God is forcefully advancing, but the violent bear it away. The faith that Jesus submits to is to be swallowed by the same spirit of violence which resists the kingdom on, on the cross. And this generation, Jesus says, never wants to hear about the kingdom, either from the likes of John or from the likes of Jesus. And so John is beheaded, and violent men nail Jesus to the cross. But the spirit of violence cannot silence Jesus. Death cannot hold him. He conquers death by being raised from the dead. And although death had universal dominion before Jesus, now Jesus has dominion over death. Behold, Jesus says in Revelation, I am the living one. I was dead. And now look, I am alive forever and ever, and I hold the keys to Hades and to death. In obtaining mastery over death itself, Jesus inaugurates that new age, the messianic age, the age of the kingdom of God. But all of us who live now continue to live on the border between these two ages. We are people of the new age. If you have been baptized and your faith is in Jesus, you are greater than John the Baptist because you have passed over into this new age. But we see all around us the continuing effects, and we feel the anguish of living in the present age, the age where sin and death have the mastery. St. Paul, perhaps more than any other New Testament writer, picks up the theme of the two ages. As Fleming Rutledge says, it isn't possible to understand Paul without thinking of him as he thought of himself, as a soldier of the cross, a general on the front lines. He envisions the whole human race caught up in a cosmic struggle. His letters are written in the context of a vast, malign forces arrayed against the Messiah, bent upon destroying Christ's mission to save the world. The kingdom of God is forcibly advancing, but it is everywhere resisted by violent and malevolent forces. We are on the border of the two ages, And it is on that border, on the front line, where the fighting is most intense. We should expect to live in dangerous and risky times. We are waiting for the Lord to return, but it is not a passive waiting. It's not like sitting in the waiting room of a doctor's office. It is more like waiting in a trench surrounded by barbed wire. Because wherever the truth is spoken and lived in this present age, it will encounter resistance. Whether we want it to be so or not, that is the situation each one of us finds ourselves in today. When we were baptized, we were conscripted into the army of Christ and we were giving marching orders to fight bravely under his banner against the world, the flesh, and the devil. Remember your baptism, Christians. But what Who are we fighting against and how do we fight? We're not fighting with other human beings, that much is certain. Jesus came to redeem human beings. We are fighting against evil and malign spirits. And we do not fight with our weapons or in our own strength. We are not fighting with human weapons at all. Our warfare is of a very different kind. It is a war against what Paul calls this present darkness, against the powers and the principalities that subject human beings to slavery. When we were baptized, we were born anew to live in the power of the Spirit. We were given access to the Spirit's gifts, We were given access to the armor of Christ, the armor that Christ himself wears as he intercedes forever for us at the right hand of the Father. After Paul tells us what kind of battle we are fighting, he says, therefore, take on the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day. Stand, therefore, having girded your loins with truth and having put on the breastplate of righteousness and having shod your feet with the equipment of the gospel of peace. And besides all of these... Take up the shield of faith with which you can quench all the flaming darts of the evil one. And put on the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. Know your scriptures, Christians. Your scriptures are the weapons with which you fight the evil one. James gives us another image in our epistle reading today. He says we're living in the transition between the two worlds and therefore we're like farmers waiting for the land to yield its valuable crop, patiently waiting for the autumn and the spring rains. There is absolutely nothing you and I can do to speed up this process, but there are things that we can do like the faithful farmer to participate in the process. Whether we think of ourselves as soldiers or as farmers for Christ, the practices and the virtues we must develop are exactly the same. And chief among them is to endure. But endurance, as I said, is not a passive thing. And it is emphatically not a private or individual thing. James says, if you're in trouble, you must pray. Do not try to meet this trouble and this sorrow with your own strength. Draw upon the strength that is yours in Jesus Christ. Above all, brothers and sisters, we must pray for each other. Because the prayer of the righteous person is powerful and effective. And hey, here's this. We have to celebrate together. Garate, rejoice. If you're happy and joyous, shield that joy and share that joy with your brothers and sisters by singing together in thanksgiving to the Lord. And if you're sick, call upon the priests of the church to anoint you with oil and to pray for healing. Friends, this waiting is hard, it's dangerous waiting, it's arduous waiting. And that's why we have to practice it together. That's why we follow the church calendar. That's why we pray together. That's why we gather together each week to be fed by Christ in the sacrament. Don't give up doing these things, my friends. We have not arrived yet. There are more spiritual battles to fight. There is more time to wait before the harvest is brought in. But we can be of good cheer because we know the kingdom of God is forcefully advancing and all the violence of the spirit of of our enemy cannot stop it. Gaurate, Rejoice. We know the ending. Jesus wins. Everything hidden will be revealed. Everything evil will be swept away before the righteousness of God. And the wilderness will rejoice and blossom. And we will see the glory of the Lord, the splendor of our God. The one we are waiting for has come. And he will come again to set everything to rights. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen.